Hi, this is Elizabeth Bailey, and you're listening to the Citizens Podcast from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Church planning is notoriously difficult. Uh, Many church plants fail. The majority of church plants fail, and it's been amazing to see ours grow and succeed in despite of the pandemic. But when people ask me what's the most difficult part of church planting, I tell them it's that everyone has to row. And what I mean by that is remember like crew teams in college, here's the U.S. Olympic team. Our women will be going for gold for a fourth time in a row this summer. Come on. The boys got fourth in Rio last time, but the women pulling strong and in rowing, they all sit this direction and they pull in one direction together. This is called a coxswain who sits at the front and calls out the rows. They don't do any rowing. That's kind of my job at the church plant, but the metaphor breaks down as I'm also rowing here. I'm not just chilling with a megaphone. Uh, But the point in rowing is that everyone must do their part. Everyone must grab an oar. And that's the difficulty in church planning is everyone must serve. Everyone is doing something in the body of Christ to make it effective. And when it feels difficult because we've been trained often by churches not to row. We've been trained to come, to sit, to be entertained. If you're real passionate, maybe give or serve, repeat. And you won't find that anywhere really in the Bible. But you will find this in the Bible. You will find an invitation to row. That the church planning is not about spectating. It's not about being a bystander. But rather, it's rowing. And I want to tell you, as the members of Citizens Church, thank you. This is not a rebuke to say, let's get busy rowing. But rather an encouragement that you are following God in your life. And if you find ways that you want to follow more, fantastic, let's do that. But overall, as I look at our church, I'm so deeply encouraged that as we look at what Paul's doing, this is what we are doing, and let's just pour it on. Let's do more and more, and not that we exhaust ourselves, but rather we make this our normal life. Because in the Bible, these aren't, Paul's not saying this is an exceptional way to plant a church. He's saying this is a normal way to plant a church, that we've just been taught something less than the Bible. And so as we look today, we're going to see kind of six footsteps, six ways that Paul tells them, I've planted this way and you do the same. And it gives us a path to follow in this time when the world is ending. And when I say the world is ending, I'm speaking biblically that the time between Jesus rising from the dead in 33 AD and the time in between now in which he's going to return one day, that's what the Bible calls the end times. It's all the time in between Jesus' first resurrection and his return. Why? Because we don't know when he'll return. No one knows the day or the hour except the Father. And so the Bible tells us to be ready. It doesn't say go build a compound, but rather it says let your faith compound. Let your faith, hope, and love grow in anticipation of the day that the skies will rip open and the Lord Jesus will return. So what is that ancient pathway? Look with me as we learn more about how to row together. Look at verse 2. The first footstep is Paul is engaged in risky preaching. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. 
Paul, when he says we had this trouble in Philippi, he's referring to being arrested, being whipped within an inch of his life, and being imprisoned. So kind of a lot went on in Philippi. He breezes past it in like five words. But in Acts 16, it describes this dramatic, painful trial for preaching the gospel. Now he's miraculously freed from prison, and he travels 105 miles down Roman roads here to Thessalonica, and he keeps preaching, even though he knows trouble's going to follow him. People talk. He's not going to be in trouble in one town and not be in trouble in the next town. But Paul keeps proclaiming this gospel and doesn't let the fear of pain, the fear of shame, the fear of suffering stop them. Why? Look at verse 3 with me. It says, for our appeal, our preaching, it doesn't come from error. It doesn't come from impure motives. It doesn't have any attempt to deceive. Paul's not gaining anything by suffering. The more he preaches, the more he suffers. But just as we've been approved by God and entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, or nor with the pretext of greed. God is our witness. Nor did we see glory from people, whether from you or for others. Paul and Silas, even though they'd suffered so much, they get back up to the plate of preaching, knowing it's going to go poorly for two reasons. A, they've been entrusted with the gospel. They have the truth, and the truth has to come out. Jesus has changed their life, so they have to tell people about Jesus. And this B, that's A, and B is they know their motives are prayer. They know their motives are pure. They're not doing it for any gain. And so when they say, why am I suffering? It's only for the gospel. They're not doing it for money. They're not doing it for greed. They're not doing it to gain the applause of people. They know their motives are pure. So they're doing it to please God when they preach. And they don't come to people trying to flatter them or greed them or or for gain or glory. They're not trying to grease people up to accept this gospel. Rather, they're proclaiming it that no matter what, I'm going down swinging with Jesus. And this is crucial for us, church, because there's this horrible myth in our culture that we really don't want to be this guy. Repent, turn to Jesus, or burn with a nice shirt and a megaphone. And because we don't want to be this guy, we so overreact that we never share Jesus. Or we caveat it this way man, I'm just waiting for that perfect moment with my brother, my mother, my sister, my neighbor, my friend, my coworker. And one day, God's going to deliver a perfect moment. How will you know it's there? I don't know, but I know that's a real myth in our minds because I don't want to be the guy with a sign and a megaphone. I'm going to wait for the perfect moment. And I'm here to tell us there is no perfect moment. There is no perfect moment. Should we be prayerful, wise, tactful? Should we love well? Absolutely. But we should not wait months and years for these perfect moments. Why? Because the gospel is too important and the situation is too urgent. The Lord could return in the parking lot. That is just as likely as him returning in 10,000 years. They're equal likely if we don't know when he's coming. The situation is too important. The gospel is too urgent. And I'm going to be honest with you. Often there's chances to share about your faith pretty early in your relationships. As someone's getting to know you. Are you someone who goes to church? You can tell them about citizens. You can tell them about how you came to Christ. There's a lot of opportunities early in relationships. So waiting for this perfect chance may never come. 
here are some perfect chances that I've had. Usually it's apologizing for my bad behavior, apologizing when I've said something stupid, apologizing for misunderstandings, apologizing for, for doing something I wish I didn't. That's a great time to share your faith, that you're not devastated when you blow it. Instead, you have hope in a real Savior. No one ever wins someone over because they're absolutely perfect. They're like, you know what? They're just so great. They're basically Jesus, I believe now. Hasn't happened yet. Hasn't happened for you or anyone else. One of the best ways to share your faith is when you have a misunderstanding at work that doesn't go well. It may be a chance when they're in distress. Tragedy is a great time to share your faith, whether it's in the world or in their, per or in their personal life. It may be talking about Loki and then stumbling into a conversation about the meaning of life. And I know some of y'all are saying, Justin, that is my perfect moment. That is exactly what I pray for every week. Will someone please talk to me at work about Loki? I, I know that you nail it, guys. Go for it. Read two blogs. Go for it, guys. But I want to give you some real examples. Not to brag in any way, but these are actual conversations with my neighbors over the years. I've gotten to share my faith the day after the cops came for domestic violence next door. To say, what does love really mean? if I can't trust my spouse anymore. I've gotten to share my faith after a long philosophical economic discussion on the morality of recycling. Elena was there for that one. We made quite a turn. <laughs> I've gotten to share my faith out apologizing for how I parked my car so haphazardly as they started making fun of me regularly that I can't drive, apparently. We can share without hesitation like Paul, because just like Paul, you have been entrusted with the gospel. The gospel comes to you in order to go through you. If you know Jesus, you are well equipped to share your faith. We got a discipleship course coming up on evangelism and apologetics. That's a great equipping too, but you know enough if you know the Lord to tell someone else your story and use the scriptures you know to share about the goodness of God. That's why when we memorized scripture this summer, almost all of them were easy faith shares. I picked them so that you would be more equipped to share your faith and do it with great confidence because the Lord's alive. And the Lord is working in your life and telling people about that is deeply attractive to them. Sharing can be as simple as this. Hey, we've never talked about spiritual things. What do you believe spiritually? And then just listening. Talk about it, respond. You don't have to fight. You're asking what they believe. And then eventually say, hey, my faith's really important to me. Do you mind if I share? Tell them your story. Tell them about the Lord. Tell them about creation, fall, redemption, and consummation that the Lord will return, a restoration. It can be that easy to share your faith. And I know that feels deeply risky, but I'm here to tell you the truth. Risking isn't a new method. Risking is Jesus' method. In Galatians 4.4, it says at just the right time, Jesus was born to us. What was Jesus' life marked by? Well, it starts off with a genocide. It's marked with violence throughout and a bloody death. And God said that was the perfect time in his eyes in the history of the world for Jesus to be born. See, the difficulties you see in sharing your faith aren't difficult to God. You would say, wow, that's quite a record for our Savior. Are we sure that was the right time? Well, God says it was. And so guess what the right time is for you to share your faith? It's to do risky preaching like Paul he just gotten out of jail. 
He got to the next town and he continued to share his faith. That should challenge us deeply. I want citizens to grow that way by sharing our faith with boldness and kindness over and over. Don't let the suffering of social loss, awkwardness, changes in your relationship keep you from the necessary risk of sharing the gospel. To share something this big and this true is a risk, but it's a risk worth taking because the gospel is that important and the matter is truly that urgent. Second step looks like this. Paul's preaching was made real by his love. Look at this motherly love. You don't expect this out of Paul? And Paul's like, let me get in my bag real quick, all right? Verse seven. But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being, a, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel, but all of our life, all of our own selves, because you have become very dear to us. Paul is not a mom, but Paul can be so gentle that he can mimic the gentleness of maybe the most gentle relationship of the world of a newborn baby nursing at a mother's breast. He says, I got that level of kindness, gentleness, and love for you Thessalonians. So they couldn't ignore his gospel because he loved them that much. See, their love in Thessalonians was so great that they share the gospel in their lives. And here's the truth. When we make our relationships about Jesus, we tend to love them well and share the gospel. When we make our relationships about us, we tend not to love others outside of our really strict little boundaries of who to love and who to not love. And we never share the gospel at all. And this is common sense, but it's not common practice. The people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. If you want to be a leader at work, embrace that. If you want to be a leader at Citizens, embrace that. Let people know how much you care before you let them know how much you know. And you will be much more, su much more successful with your message, no matter what it is, including this gospel. And Paul's affection continues with fatherly instruction. Look at this, verse 9 and 11. This is incredible stuff. He says, for you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work hard. We work nights. We work days. We work like Stephen Tedditon. Where are you at, homie? Day and night. We might not be a burden of it to any of you. He didn't charge them for the gospel. That's why I raised money to plant citizens. I didn't show up, guys. Hey, guys, I'm going to plant a church. Who wants to support it and just walk through the neighborhood? That's crazy talk. You are witnesses. And God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. And here's where it gets cool. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who called you into his own kingdom and glory. There's a way to both be gentle like a mother and a newborn and clear with people like a loving father. You can do both. The world says you can't do both. You're either a drill sergeant and, and you're mean or you love me. And, when, and the gospel is saying, man, you can be gentle and clear. That's how you make good relationships. That's how you share a good, a good gospel. And there's no finer example in this than Jesus. If you want to know what that looks like, man, read the gospels. Everything Jesus says is perfect. Every tone he hits is perfect. Everything he does is perfect. And he's gentle, kind, and clear 
all the time. And Paul understood what made a father powerful. When dad does what he says and dad says what matters. If you're ever around dad, they only talks about nonsense all the time. You don't respect him. If you're ever around dad who says things and doesn't back it up with his actions, you don't respect him. The hypocrisy of life makes dad's teachings a joke, but the integrity makes dad's teachings stick. When people tell me they had a great dad, it's almost always because dad took the time to give them this teaching, not his temperament. If you're dad in this room, your kids don't need your anger. They don't need your moodiness. They don't need your tiredness, but they sure will respond to your teaching in an instant to get down on their level eye to eye and teach them how life works. Same with moms. Kids respond so much to our teaching. They want to learn. They want to be like us. If we can only learn to rein in that temperament, if we can only learn to be firm and gentle at the same time. And Paul's saying the exact same stuff. What's true at home is true for the gospel. And we need to pause here big time. Because was Paul a father? No. In all likelihood, he wasn't a dad. Was Paul a mother? I can be certain on this. No. Did that stop him from being gentle like a mom? Absolutely not. Did that stop him from exhorting like a dad? Absolutely not. See, God wants you to preach the gospel and risk with the gentle love of a great mother and the clear encouragement of a great father, whether you're a dad or a mom or you're not. I'm not a mom, but I'm still called to be gentle like a mom. And there's a poisonous lie in our culture that your capacity to care for others is entirely limited by your experience or your background. That you can't possibly care for someone unless you've experienced the exact same life. And that's just a, that's just a big fat lie. The scriptures teach us if we listen to others well, if we will humble ourselves to truly do the work of understanding others' experiences, we can love others, we can care about people, and we can make a difference in their life. Paul didn't go, I don't know, this guy needs some fatherly instruction and never got married, not a dad, I guess I'm just out. That's ridiculous. He looked at people who needed some gentle love, and Paul stepped in and did it. Jesus didn't have any of those experiences. And look at this man. He's on a roll, gospel after gospel, loving this world until it changes him from the inside out. So too with you. What if you stopped counting yourself out and started to act and believe that God was calling you to love every person at your workplace well? whether they're a year from retirement or they're a greenhorn on the job, that you, not someone else, is called to be a father and a mother in their life. And they might be a father and a mother in your life. What if you stop limiting what God can do through you, writing yourself off? I think we let the devil have a megaphone in our heart to say, I don't know, if I, if I just get someone like just three years younger than me and we, we went to the same college and blah, 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 blah. No, God wants to use you as you, working through you to love others well. And on the flip side of it, what if you stopped waiting for this perfect person, someone that gets you to share your burdens and pains with? What if you stopped waiting for someone who has the exact same traumatic experience to finally share with? Because I'm telling you, there are people in your life that would listen, humbly connect, empathize and give care of a mother and a father to you if you would let them. It's a myth that you have to have the exact same experience to understand what someone's gone through. It may take work. It may be 
a person putting down their assumptions, but if they're a godly person and they love you, how about church you let them love you? Don't wait for this long lost father or mother to come help heal you when they're probably already sitting beside you. Don't let pride tell the lie that experience is the great limiter. When Paul just steps in and says, man, I'm going to love with my whole heart and say I'm sorry when I miss. Let's be wild lovers of people and not put a lid on what God does with us. And the fourth step looks like this. Paul got comfortable with being uncomfortable. Look with me at verse 14. It says, For you brothers became imitators of the church of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. We got to get up into Paul's story a little bit here. But remember, Paul was a leader of the Jewish Pharisees, a leader in persecuting the church. And so how awkward was his life? Yes, he met the amazing love of Jesus, but he had to show up and go, I was way wrong. First sentence, every speech. I oversaw some murders. My bad. Jesus is actually Lord. I know I've taught against it thoroughly, but now I'm on the other team. And then he had to go on in the speech to synagogue after synagogue with a crazy divisive message that no one ever fully believed. Some people believed and then the rest hated him and threw him out. Imagine how comfortable in the Lord he would have to get to be uncomfortable every week of his life for 20 plus years. But that's what it takes to keep risking for that gospel. That's what it takes to love as a mother and a father. You got to get comfortable with being uncomfortable in your life. If your God is comfort, you will struggle to do anything for the gospel. Just like if your God is control. If you want to be limited by what God does in your life, make control your idol or make comfort your idol. And you will make a kingdom of your life as small as you are. Where you can control things or at least think you do. And you can drive your minor comforts as much as you think. Paul had to lay it down and say, I am wildly out of control and nothing works. I am in trouble always. I'm uncomfortable always. He's the same apostle who writes in 1 Timothy 1.15. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came to save sinners, church, of whom I'm the foremost. Can you walk up into your life and neighborhood and say that? I'm that confident in the gospel. I'm that unconfident in me. And deal with the uncomfortability that comes. Because the gospel is urgent. Because people matter to God. Yet the fight isn't primarily against flesh and blood. Look with me. The fight is against Satan for presence. Look, at this is wild stuff. He just jumps right into this. Hasn't mentioned Satan yet. He's like, we're just going to splash right into a whole new realm of things. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, they had to leave in the night. Things went terrible in Thessalonica for a short time, in person but not in heart. They still cared about these Thessalonians. We endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. 
not bad weather, not I was scared, but he goes all the way to the top to Satan. Verse 1 of chapter 3, Therefore, we could bear it no longer. We were willing to be left behind in Athens all alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you. Exhort is a fancy word for teach you in the faith. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter, Satan again, had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Paul says, the reason I didn't come to you was spiritual warfare. What if in your life, in your mission, in the neighborhood, in your workplace, with your family, it wasn't just because you weren't equipped enough or weren't focused enough or not courageous enough, but there you actually acknowledge that there's a demonic force working against you in the world, that all these coincidences aren't all that coincidental if you're trying to share the gospel. That all these difficulties can't just be written off. It's dangerous and irresponsible to blame everything that doesn't work out in your life on the devil. Everyone's met someone like that. Oh, the devil this, devil this, and there's like no accountability for their own role in their life. Not helpful. It's also dangerous and naive to think sharing the gospel and loving well won't be opposed by demonic forces. We tend to give Satan way too much credit or ignore him altogether. And it's kind of more in the middle. And the solution isn't that we have some special gear or some special ritual to do. The strategy is simply to trust Jesus, resist the devil, and the scripture says he'll flee from you, but we must persevere in choosing against temptation. When things don't work out, the temptation would be this subtle. Well, just give up sharing your faith. You tried twice. You know what? You don't have to love your brother well anymore. You tried once. Sometimes we think the temptation will be this huge thing and lure. And maybe it is. But a lot of times it's more subtle. Maybe God's not big or good enough to change the heart of that neighbor. Maybe you don't have the capacity to love like a father or a mother. Because maybe you didn't have a great father or mother growing up. Ooh, that's a hot lie. But usually it's a lot more subtle, like the snake to Eve than these big lies. The tempter is tempting us all the time to leave these sorts of footsteps and quit on God's work in our life. So we see Paul sends Timothy. Timothy returns and we get the sixth and final footstep. And it's this cadence of mission. We see it as we read. I want this word just to wash over you. Feel the affection of this grown man for other grown men and women and how he talks about these people. And I also want you just to take in the ordinariness. We always think one day we're going to have like this killer moment in ministry. It's going to be like crazy. And like, you know, it's going to be like the end of a Marvel movie and we're going to fly or something. And it's like, listen how ordinary this stuff is. He's talking about like traveling back and forth across some like rocky roads roads in Greece. The cadence of mission is prayer, people, joy, prayer, people, joy, prayer, people, joy. Look at verse six. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, young Timothy returns, and he has brought us the good news of your faith and love and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. They're encouraged by a mutuality that Paul's not just being over the top. They're over the top in love for each other. Presence matters. If people matter, then your physical presence matter. We all hate Zoom, amen? 
All right. Verse 7, for this reason, brothers, in all of our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God. As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face. There's presence again. And supply what's lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. He got a good report and Paul still wants to come back. This guy can't stop himself. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness. He wants them to grow up in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints in view of the end of the world, church. Notice Paul prays for these people and longs for them. When he's with the people or even hears reports about the people, he erupts in joy. When the people meet Timothy, they erupt in joy. Timothy erupts in joy. And then they go back and they keep praying again to go meet the people again. And joy at Timothy coming. Your Christian life should feel like prayer, people, joy, repeat. Prayer, people, joy, repeat. Prayer, people, joy, repeat. And you should be blessed in the ordinariness of it. That instead of an extremely uh, adventurous, dangerous thing, some of us are called to go far. All of us are called to go somewhere, whether it's across the street or across the world. But when we hung out with our missionaries, what did they do? Prayer, people, joy, repeat. They're doing the same things. There's a glorious ordinariness to a healthy Christian life that's animated or enlivened by an extraordinary God. And that's what the church does. It does more but not less. And the lie from Satan that will disturb this happy pattern in your life is this. Is that your presence doesn't matter to God or anyone else. You want to cut that cadence immediately? You want to stop a prayer life on a dime? Think you don't matter to God that he's not listening. Believe the lie that God doesn't love you, that God didn't create you in your mother's womb. Believe the lie that no one cares if you're not at Sunday, that no one cares if you're not at CG, that no one cares if you don't serve, that no one cares about your friendship. And watch how quickly all the people in your life disappear on a lie. Even if you're asked, like, why do I believe that? You're like, well, did someone tell you that you don't matter to me? Go away. I think very few of us have had that experience, if at all. But how quickly does that settle in your heart? How quickly does that steal all the joy from your walk, from the local church? Let me tell you this. Some of y'all have been community group leaders or led something. You know how much your leader probably misses you when you're not there? You know how often they prayed and prepared and thought about you? that's how I feel all the time. Not because I would want to guilt trip anyone. Instead, the very opposite. I just think the most prayerful people, joy, cadence of our life is our presence matters before God and others. 
I've been in ministry for 12 years now, and I've seen people fall away from the faith, come into the faith, go back out of the faith. But the people who are evergreen that just can't stop growing for years and now a decade plus on end are the people who put their presence before God and before other believers all the time. And never give in and never give up and don't believe the lies of the enemy. And if they fall off the truck, they get back on. Because your presence matters to God and it matters to other people. When we don't show up and be present in someone's life, there's no way we can row. And you're actually stealing from that other person if you've committed to a relationship with them. They're losing too, even as they lose your presence. So I want to encourage you, don't let Satan win to say, no one cares if I don't show up. Because the lies usually spiral into, I'm too busy. No one cares. God feels distant. And suddenly the oar clanks out of our hand and we wander off into whatever else. It's easily the saddest and hardest part of my ministry over the years. Is the progression into the bystander effect. Anybody familiar have heard of the bystander effect before? It's a psychological phenomenon that often, even in an emergency situation, people feel like they won't intervene because someone else must be there, even if they have no reasonable grounds to believe someone else is going to help. It stems from an incident on March 13th in 1964 when Kitty Genovese, only about 300 yards from her apartment in Queens, was attacked and murdered. The attack went on for minutes. People heard it. People she even knew her and knew her voice heard it. Their entire apartment complex was awake. It did not happen. And people knew the screams. They knew something was happening. And almost no one phoned the police or even went outside because everyone assumed that someone else was going to help this person or intervene. It launched a bunch of psychological studies to confirm this, that the bystander effect is a very real thing. And I think it's so real in our Christian life for two reasons. We don't see the emergency of the situation. Your salvation is an emergency situation. You must know the Lord or you will be lost at the great judgment. Likewise for everyone else on earth. That's the emergency. That's the urgency. And number two, we assume someone else will grab the oar and we're not really needed. And I think those are both huge, deadly lies. And I don't want to see any of us be a bystander. I want us all to row together with great joy. And let me be clear. Salvation is an emergency for the world. And you are needed in the kingdom of God. Both here at Citizens or wherever you can plug in and be deeply involved in your local church. Church. Let's row together and move forward together. You've been listening to the Citizens Church Podcast. Special thanks to Murphy DX, who recorded our theme music. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama, you can visit us on our website at citizensbhm.com or on the usual suspects, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.